Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nina Pantic. This episode features my co-host, Irina Falcone, as well as our special guest, Sally Bradfield. Sally is the author of a book that came out in January, loosely based on life on the WHA tour as a communications manager. It's called Not Quite 30 Love. The book follows a fictional protagonist called Katie Cook as she maneuvers her way through life. Uh, she interacts with a bunch of coworkers, obviously, notably one woman named Brenda, who is the villain, and falls in love with an ATP player who she calls Nikolai Petrov. Irene and I try and find out who these characters are based on in the real world as Sally tells us about her life as a WTA comms manager, as well as what it was like getting her foot in the door in tennis and what she's up to now and how she's promoting her book, Not Quite 30 Love. All right, Sally, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. It is awesome to have you on today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Sally is the author of Not Quite 30 Love, a book that came out in January, and she has spent decades on the tour working for the WTA and a little bit on the ATP, so we're going to get into that. I'd like to start us right off with why did you want to write a book? Initially, I think it was cathartic. So the first drafts of Not Quite 30 Love were so close to autobiographical it wasn't funny. Katie Cook, who, as you know, is the main protagonist, was really just a um, find and replace Sally Bradfield. And, and as I as the drafts moved on, Katie Cook became her own person. Sally Bradfield got out of her way. Um, but initially it was, it was a lot of catharsis, I think. So um, I've, I've often said that first draft, I could actually go back, re-replace my name for it, and that could be my biography down the track. <laughs> Have you actually thought about like doing a second book? Because me and Nina, like I was obsessed with it and uh, Nina was first obsessed with it. And then she's like, hey, you have to read this book. And uh, yeah, I quite enjoyed it and kind of curious if there's going to be a sequel. At one point, I was really keen to write a sequel and I had started it. And then I got told by publishers and so forth, oh, no, don't write a sequel, write something different. So I'm halfway through a book that's uh, a murder mystery around centered around the tour. Um, so probably when I finish that, I might go back to the sequel of Not Quite 30 Love because I, um, yeah, I, I, I'm pleased that people are enjoying the story and that makes me want to write the sequel more again. So, uh, yeah, she, Katie Cook has more life in her. For those that have not read the book, it's loosely or I guess in some ways, many ways, based on your life um, working for the WHA, but you have this love interest named Nikolai Petrov. And I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, this has got to be based on Nick Curious. But then you drop in Nick Curious's name. So yeah, for those who haven't read it, she's working on the tour, obviously, the WTA tour, but we all know that ATP and WTA tournaments kind of are held the same city sometimes. So you cross paths with this like sexy guy. He's a, <laughs> he's a top tennis player. 
And I need to know who it's based on because it's not Nick. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone wants to say it's it's Marit Safin because oh. it was Russian. But, of course, he's, you know, a, a bit older given the, the time frame. That's why I actually put Marit Safin in there too because I got that in early drafts and people are so I stuck Marit Safin in there so the poor guy wasn't um, <laughs> accused of being Nikolai Petrov. I never thought of Kyrgios being him. I think so, it's just because of the age, like, yeah. Never. Maybe it's because I'm too old for Kyrgios. To never have thought about him. As Maybe being. I didn't do my research well enough to figure out when you were actually working. That's that's the issue here. Yeah, no, my I mean, my hero growing up was um, John McEnroe, and so the original drafts of the book, she was in love with John McEnroe, but uh, clearly that wasn't going to hold water in two thousand and twenty. So I had to update him. He isn't, and I know everyone wants to believe that everyone's based on someone. He actually isn't. He's an amalgam of a whole lot of different players, and Kyrgios was not even in the picture. Sorry. (laughs) Honestly, like, I felt a little bit like I was going in a time capsule almost because there were moments where I was like, okay, these are some old school names. And then it's like, all right, well, we're talking about Instagram now. So when Nina told me it was based on John McEnroe, I was like, wait hold on, like, how are we talking about Instagram and it's based on John McEnroe? So how, what percentage would you say was, like, factual and stuff that actually happened to you? Oh, in the initial drafts, probably 80%. But in, in this draft, oh, 10 or 20%. I mean, what what was re- what is real in this book is the framework of, you know, the endless cycle of getting on and off planes and travelling to... Um, you know, tournaments and the same sort of seeing the same sort of group, and you travel around and you miss people one week, but you see them the next. And and the struggle of trying to, uh, it, it obviously it's a job of a communications manager. So that struggle of being the meat in the sandwich between the players, wanting them to get to do things, becoming friends with them, but at the same time you have to ask them to do stuff they don't want to do. Um, all of all of the scenarios of of what players' lives are like on the tour and what people who work with them's lives are like on the tour. Tour. I I tried to make as real as possible, and I ran it by current comms managers, a couple of them to say to them, you know, am I, you know, is my distance from the tour distancing this book from the tour and making sure it was still very, um, you know, real setting. I wasn't going off the rails from that point of view and, and that was important to me um, because obviously I haven't worked on the tour full time for a few years. So that was really important. But in terms of the of the scandals that happen in there, none of the scandals are. I came up with those scandals. Some of them I thought should happen and would. I can't believe hadn't happened. But yeah, no. I, I like to think as a writer, I can come up with stuff that isn't just copied from real life. The scandals. Wait, yes, the scandals are both very interesting. I don't want to give too much away. People haven't read no. it, but the scandals are definitely creative. Yet, exactly what you just said, they could feasibly happen. But also yeah. I want to talk about your career as WTA. So when I work, I work as a journalist uh, for Tennis.com and Tennis Magazine. I've been kind of on tour, nowhere near your level of travel, but like six tournaments a year or so. Mm-hmm. But I've interacted with WTA and ATP comms managers daily when I'm at these tournaments. I didn't quite understand their role at the beginning. Now I definitely, definitely do. A lot of respect for them. And they're so crucial for my career. It's like, it's like they're, the, they're the door to the players. But I've never yep. really talked with them openly about what their career is like. I think it's just a little bit of, I don't know, we're a little bit on different levels, so to speak. And yeah, I don't think we interact. We're not really friends. You know, everyone's kind of respectful, but no one's really like hanging out. So as WTA mm-hmm. comms, did you have a hard time handling journalists? Was that one of the pressures? You kind of mentioned it in the book a little bit here and there. But 
was that a big part? Because I know players obviously can be very difficult to work with, but what about the journalists? In my day, there were a lot of dedicated tennis journalists. The newspapers, and I know newspapers are a dying thing, but the newspapers uh, probably 20, for a long time before me and towards the beginning of my career, were still really, really important. And they often had a, particularly places, you know, The Guardian and you know, Daily Mail and stuff, they had a dedicated tennis journalist and they would um, they would travel fairly, you know, 20-plus tournaments a year. And, it, and whilst there are still that to a lesser extent, most of the people who travel journalists um, very regularly are more likely to be online now and and there's less that travel as much. So it, it is slightly different. But we did have a core group of journalists that we had relationships with and you learnt, you know, to understand that these guys were just trying to do a job just like you were trying to do a job, just like the players are trying to do a job. Unfortunately, all of those jobs completely conflict in what they're trying to achieve. Um, but, uh, you know, if you respect people, you're more likely to get on with them. But yeah, I mean, there were times when journalists would get really, you know, antsy and narky with you for not bringing a player, um, that they wanted or not giving them the exclusive that they wanted. And, uh, you know, the impossible dream of, um, you know, I had some fantastic tournaments that I went to. I remember taking Martina Hingis to India, uh, for an event, a tournament that it was a lower ranked tournament, but she was brought in to be the big star, and obviously they'd, let's just say, given her a bit of cash to turn up. Um, and every journalist, you know, every <laughs> the two hundred journalists wanted a one on one with her, which clearly she wasn't going to do. She had a few pre arranged one on ones, and I had to navigate that um, uh, quite aggressive um, desire <laughs> and try and get the interviews that they wanted and the tournament wanted to happen because they thought that was going to get them the biggest reach versus the interviews that the journalists all wanted to happen. So that was a, a constant battle. But in mostly journalists, just like yourself, were just trying to do their job. And as long as you respect that, you can kind of get around the fact that you can't give everyone everything. Is that too long an answer? No, it's a perfect answer. The one-on-ones <laughs> no, one are gold. Answers. Yeah, I, it's so relatable. I know exactly what what it's like to be chasing a one-on-one -on -one and then and then yes. be told, "Hey, sorry, you know, this usually very famous player can only do with their home country or something." Yeah, exactly. Or what they've agreed to do. I mean, you know, uh, some of the players get it more than others, and, and you know, I, I, mean, I don't think it's any surprise to tell you that Roger Federer gets it more than most. He does an extraordinary amount of press for an extraordinary amount of people. Um, he can't do it all. There's no way he could do it all. But he certainly does way more and is way more accessible than most, um, you know, megastars because that's what he certainly is in our sport. Uh, so he gets it. And I, I actually saw an interview with Danara Safina really recently, who I adored and worked with very much when I was on the tour. She's a fabulous girl. And she said she... Um, she's working with tournaments. She works with the Madrid tournament a little bit, um, probably more than a little bit, and she said that she felt regret for not doing as many interviews as she should have done when she was a player. She understood it more now. She was on the other side, and I'm sure there's quite a few players um, who get – I mean, Barbara Shett, for example, now is, you know, you know uh, huge in Eurosport and huge in quite a few other um, avenues from a journalistic TV-only point of view – but she um, would understand what she didn't understand as a player now, you know, and be far more like, oh, God, I wish I had. I wish I had thought about that 20 years ago. But, you know, you can only be 20 when you're 20 and 40 when you're 40. Hindsight's 2020, though. 
you know, you, I'm sure she's looking back and she's like, yeah, I wish I could have done more. But at the moment, you're like, oh, my gosh, please stop asking me questions. Exactly. Exactly. And also, let, let's face it, some journalists can be very boring with their questions. They, they can be very boring. I mean, I've told this to Nina several times. I mean, they can also be extremely judgmental, too, especially the top players if, if they're not um, peaking every single week. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey listeners, you're listening to Tennis.com podcast with special guest Sally Bradfield. She's telling us what it's like to write a book about working on the WTA tour. Keep listening. But yeah, I just, it's interesting to see. I mean, you've obviously seen what the WTA and ATP tour have become in the last 20, 30 years. What would you say is like the biggest difference from when you started to now? And it's funny, it's, uh, one of the things that t- tennis goes in waves, of course, waves of popularity, waves of um, champions, et cetera, uh, and we go through waves of um, there's only two or three people who are really, really capturing attention in terms of um, media uh, through to there not being two or three people and there being a whole wave of anyone who could win. And I always find it funny that the media will will criticise both ends. Oh, it's boring because it's only going to be Federer or Nadal or Djokovic who can win. Or, oh, it's boring in the women's tour right now because anyone can win. Yeah, so that's always um, one of the things I find most ironic. And, and honestly, the, both tours that I've worked with, they go through different CEOs. The different CEOs want to put their stamp on the tour um, and then things change for a little bit and then they change back for where the, what they were. And just my job, for example, you know, when I joined the ATP, I was um, – uh, comms and marketing so I was brand manager was really my title and so I was working supposed to be working only a few weeks on the road and most of the week out of the office and very quickly as you know the CEO changes the role changes and all of a sudden you're back on the road full time and you're like oh that's why I didn't want this job I've done that and I feel like I can get more done if I focus in the office for a bit but you know it, it would continuously change and it's a bit um it's incredibly cyclical. So if you're asking me over that long period of time, it's gone around in circles several times um, from different roles to whatever. But clearly the tours and the champions are a continuous battle because they the tour needs the champions, the champion needs the tours, but the tour, the champions have too much power um, and they have too many agents and too many people that are um, trying to keep them away from giving too much to the tour, but the tour at the end of the day is the basis for the whole lot. And I don't know what will happen after the coronavirus settles down, but something tells me one of the positives, and I know there's a lot of negatives, but one of the positives may be an understanding of how much everyone needs each other. I hope that's the case. That's very sweet. (laughs) Am I Pollyanna? Am I too Pollyanna? No, no. But I'm seeing the players online and I'm seeing them doing stuff and I'm seeing them sort of recognising because one of the things we used to always say to them as the media people is like if no one knows who you are, no one's going to give you any money, you know. I mean let's let's be baseline about it. Why would a sponsor give you money or why would someone give you money if no one knows who you are or no one comes to watch you? So try and 
put those two things together. And you can't do that all on your own. I know your agent will tell you. And, of course, if you're Federer or Nadal or Djokovic or Serena or whoever you are, if you're a mega name already, then it doesn't feel quite like that. But the reality is there's no superstar without the tennis if you're a tennis player. And I think both the Williams have found that out by themselves when they both sort of for a period broke off and tried to do lots of celebrity stuff. They found that when they weren't playing, people weren't quite as interested um, in their fashion or their this or their that. People are interested because they're number one tennis player in the world, Grand Slam champion, whatever Grand Slam that might be, and doing a fashion line rather than just doing that. That's true. I, I see what you're saying there. Exactly. That's true. I think I think now in the past week or two, you've seen players posting so much more and being yeah. so much more active. But I think social media is also probably something that came around uh, maybe after you were working for the WTA because yeah. it's definitely changed yeah, the relationship. Yeah, because their image is kind of now tied to their own fingertips while it used to rely more on WTA communications, marketing, brands, agents, and journalists. Yep. Um, so I have I have one very specific question. So sometimes when I'm on at a tournament, my biggest challenge, one of my many challenges, is working with younger players because sometimes they – don't quite understand what's going on. They don't. They haven't quite figured it all out yet, right? Because they're teenagers. Yep. When you were working yep. on NWTA, did you ever feel like, what am I doing, chasing a sixteen-year-old around who does not want to be interviewed and just wants to go home and like play video games or watch TV? Uh-huh. And like, I'm chasing a child and I'm a fully grown adult. Yes. So put add. I'll add a, a little layer onto that. I'm five foot three, maybe at a good on a good time, and you wouldn't wear high heels much because you're running around. And most of these 16-year-olds you're talking about are 5 foot 10 to 6 foot 1. So not only are you talking to a 14, 15-year-old, let's pull it down a little bit because even though Coco is really young now, she isn't the first 14, 15-year-old to be on the tour. Um, 14, 15, 16-year-old who's eight inches taller than you and probably weighs more than you because she's a big person, not criticising her. Because um, the weight thing is always hysterical. Some of the weights that you see in the in the media guides, you know, you have Serena. I think she's got sixty kilos down. So probably not true. Anyway, I would I would lie too if I was Serena. <laughs> but the point being, these are big people who are still children, and you know they're more interested in the freebie they might get from the tournament. Um, you know, oh, well, I get a free handbag or a free this or a free that. Uh, and as you said, wanting to play on their phone and uh, wanting to do anything but what you want them to do. One of the things the WTA does really well, and the ATP does it differently, but it does do it well, um, is the rookie hours. And I know they sort of, it's slightly changed from when I was on tour, but you take the players around and they get to work with one of the WTA staff in the tournament office, in the media room, and they get to know how those staff work and that the staff spend time with them explaining. They have to do assignments. I mean, they're pretty basic assignments, but they have to write stuff down and try to understand what their responsibilities are and what our responsibilities are in that area. Um, so it's sort of like a hands-on course, I suppose. Uh, and it, I, I did it. I'm very proud to say I did Maria Sharapova's Rookie Hours and then I took her to her first ever autograph session in Tokyo. She was about 14 and uh, I had said to her before autograph sessions, what's really important is you look up at the fans and you smile at them as you're signing the autographs because it can be quite overwhelming. You're pretty young and these people just coming up and you're signing a piece of paper and you're trying to do that and, you know, get that coordination happening. 
And quite a few times she looked up and smiled and they took pictures and it all was very good. And at the end I said to her, you did a really good job. You looked up and smiled often. And she looked at me and she goes, because you told me to. (laughs) And that's the sort of stuff that I always remember that because I love her. And I know she got a lot of crap and a lot of um, things heaped on her, but I adored her and I thought she was wonderful. And I think for a kid her age with all of the stuff that she had to deal with, she um, was a fabulous person. You did have an inside take, though. You had an inside take <laughs> what these players were really, really like, which is which is fascinating to look back on. What uh, what years were you actively traveling? Ninety six to about two thousand and eight. Okay. And then I started, yeah, two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Wow. Too long. Do you miss the traveling? That's longer than most careers. Yeah. Do you miss the traveling? At, for for a while, actually. Paul Kildare, I don't know if you know him, he's a male player, he's a coach, he's nicknamed Killer. Um, he said when he retired and he, subsequently he's gone back on the tour to be a coach and he's a very good coach, um, he said he wanted, he walked into the Australian, through Australian customs and wanted to hand them a passport and he just said, just keep it. <laughs> I don't ever want to get on a plane again. And for a while I felt like that. Um, there's aspects of it I miss now when there's enough distance to it. And I go to the Australian Open each year and I go to Wimbledon every couple of years and um, things like that. And when I'm there, I feel really like, oh, this is lovely. I miss all these people. Isn't it lovely? And then I have a friend or a colleague um, who has to run off or can't come to dinner or whatever has happened at 3 o'clock in the morning and I, and, I, and something in me goes, yeah, I actually remember all of that. 10 hours at Wimbledon standing outside the women's locker room, you know, at the beginning of a Grand Slam, having to get 300 players for press and, uh, you know, one of them doing a runner and some of them hiding from you and you just think, actually, no, done it. (laughs) It's funny to hear you talk about it because just from personal experience, I kind of played for 10 years and then I decided to take a year off and I did, you know, kind of miss it as well. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember those late nights or early mornings having to grind and all that um but yeah I bet it must it must be fun to go to Australian Open and Wimbledon and you're kind of enjoying it like as a fan now as like a regular normal you know tennis watching person right that's right and I try to I tried to inject that a little bit into the book to remind um because Katie Cook at some point gets a bit blasé about the, the spectacle of the tournaments itself there is a real spectacle aspect to to it and that um you know, the normal fan person who goes in there gets to be a part of and a great crowd atmosphere and not just Grand Slams because, you know, I don't want to be all Grand Slam-centric because I worked for the tours and fabulous events and so much fun and so, you know, they go to so many countries and bring joy to so many people and, you know, obviously I'm pro tennis <laughs> from the from the book and from this um uh, when I first started approaching publishers, they were very, oh, isn't it an expose? They wanted an expose. And I'm like, I don't want to write an expose. I don't feel like the need, there's a need for an expose. There's nothing I hate, you know, that I want to, like, drum into people like, oh, this is really bad, this is bad. Tennis is a great sport, you know, both professionally and amateur. It's a great sport, lots of fun. Of course there's scandals. Of course there's stuff that would be not real. But, um you know, it's a it's a wonderful sport, and I think you know it's lovely to go and watch actually watch matches and not be you know sitting on the edge of your seat thinking I have to run and go and get that player when that match finishes. So yeah, it's great for me to get to watch the matches and and uh, I can clap too. That was really weird. You used to be able to watch the players, you know, these matches and some of the points, you know, are amazing and some of the athleticism is amazing. And to never be able to clap because looking like you might be biased from one player to the next was um 
was really hard sometimes and now I can clap away and yell for whoever I think should win the match and be very sure I want so-and-so to win and that's quite fun too for me. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, you have to be unbiased. That's uh, that's a massive thing. But you had, I mean, you had players you obviously had, you had, uh, you were fans of. Well, you had connections with players. When I was on the tour, I was never felt that aspect of fandom. I was a fan before the game, when I worked, before I worked in the game. I loved Martina Navratilova and I got to meet her and it was such an amazing thing. And I loved, as I said, John McEnroe and I got to meet him and that was amazing. But once you got past that initially, and I did a little bit of periphery work. I did work in the Sydney tournament before I got on the tour and a few things like that to sort of get past that fan status. It was really important working on the tour not to be a fan of the players. You could admire them. You know, you could admire what they what they are able to do on the court, and there was no doubt I, I felt that. But you can't force someone to do something they don't want to do if you were a fan. You know, you can't get in there and negotiate if they're if you're feeling fandom for them. You have to be really completely, completely divorced from that fandom once you're working with them, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get them to do anything. You wouldn't be able to negotiate with them. Um, you wouldn't just you wouldn't be able to get anything done. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, Irina here. Today we have special guest star Sally Bradfield, who is giving us all the inside information on what it takes to be a WTA communications manager. Keep listening. So Not Quite 30 Love was was your first book, um, and I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, I feel like I, I'm a writer. I know Nina's a writer. We've all kind of had the dream of, you know, writing that book. We've all had the, I want to write a book one day. I, I have, like, I think three books right now that I'm supposedly creating, and they're just, you know, documents on my laptop that I haven't probably opened in several months slash years. But um, just wanted to, like, had you always known you wanted to write a tennis book or, you know, had you just gone through all these experiences while you were at WTA comms that you were like, I got to put this in writing? No, at the end, when I was finishing, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to write a book about the life on the tour. I always had loved writing. Um, you know, as a marketer, you're writing a lot of uh, nonfiction, although sometimes you do weave a bit of fiction in there to make it interesting. Um and I'd always loved that as a kid. I always loved writing, but I, and I, I wasn't sure how to do it. And of course, like as you said, everybody says they're going to write a novel. Um, and then I went back to university and did my masters in writing, and uh, worked my way through several first attempts at writing the novel as part of that masters, um, where people were like, oh, I don't know, I don't like that because they get very literary when you're doing a masters, and it gets quite. Um, oh, I think we should be writing something a bit more highbrow than this, don't you? Uh, and I thought, no, I actually don't want to write something more highbrow than that. Uh, I want to write that. So um, yeah, I went through all of that process. Uh, the last part of getting a book ready for publication is enormously difficult because like most marketers and writers um, or journalists and writers, we're used to not 
having enough time to keep going back to the same thing. You know, it has to be published, it has to get out there, it has to go, uh, whether it's within two hours or six hours or you have a little bit longer for a feature piece. But in most cases, you don't have a lot of time to blood, sweat and tears and keep going on something. And that last bit where you've had an editor go through with it and they've given you all of this feedback and not all of it's great and then you rewrite it again and then you, you know, my last, last draft, I pulled another 10,000 words out of that book and that was really hard. And then I had to go back again and, and you know, read it again and just the constant going back over and over it um, for me was such an unnatural thing. I wanted to be finished and done with it. And at one point I was very close to just going, just publish it as it is, I don't care. <laughs> I can't do this again. I can't read this thing again. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but I did and I have. And not that long ago because it's, you know, a bit of a time between getting it finally done and it publishing, I was reading a chapter for it at my book launch. I actually was reading a chapter out loud. And uh, and it was the Wim- Willie Wimbledon's Chocolate Factory for, for you guys, but for other people it's a little bit of a um, background about what it feels to sit like in the seats at Wimbledon. And I was reading it out loud and I'm like, this is quite good. <laughs> it felt like I was reading something that someone else had written. Right. I'm kind of awesome. <laughs> Go me. This is a bit good, exactly. And I actually said to my partner, I said, this is not bad, is it? <laughs> oh, that's amazing to have written a book. It's just, as Irina said, that's something that we've obviously voiced out loud. I've never really voiced it publicly, but it's something I've always wanted to do. I just haven't figured out the the how yet. I wanted to ask you as well about one of the characters. So working for a big organization can be can be kind of scary. WTA is obviously a very legit large organization and you expect people to have yep. colleagues and coworkers and bosses, all that. I get it. Makes sense. Yep. But Brenda, is that based on a real person? No. <laughs> a villain, if anyone has a real <laughs> The first draft of Brenda, she was just a nasty B-I-T-C-H, yeah? Um, not as scheming and quite as conniving as... Uh, as uh, she becomes in the book, as the book progresses again, not trying to give too much away. Um, but Brenda, probably the initial BITCH version of her was based on real people or a real person, but I can't tell you because I would get in too much trouble. But it was someone who was not very nice to me when I started and worked in the team and uh, people can work it out from there or not work it out from there. But certainly uh, Brenda becomes a lot a lot nastier than in anyone I ever worked with ever was. As I was reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, are there women that are actually like this? Because I've been on the tour a while and I was like, okay, maybe I'm not, I don't work for corporate America, you know, maybe there are some really mean girls out there. But I mean, this is like a whole new level. So for you readers, like, I can't wait to hear about what you guys think of Brenda because she is something else. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's not she's not someone you want to be your best friend. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> no. Do you have any advice for someone trying to get into the WTA comms? I know that they only have a couple select jobs each year. Yeah. People kind of stay in it for a while. I've seen the same faces on tour for a couple of years now. Do you have any advice for someone trying to get their foot in the door, maybe from your vast experience of twenty plus years on tour? I think you've got to do something different to get note it so although it's a very different world now than when I got in no one would have thought someone from Australia was going to get that sort of job I didn't work in tennis much Uh, I didn't know anything about tennis other than that I loved it and I you know I'm talking about from an outsider fan I had all of that and I um, basically approached I applied for a job at Tennis New South Wales which is our local I suppose the state body that of the state I live in and uh, branch of Tennis Australia and I um, 
so, you know, the USTA sort of equivalent. And I saw that there was a job going for a marketing manager in the local tennis organisation, went for that, did not get it, um, rang up, kept, I harassed them because harassment's really important if you want to get something that's hard. And eventually the guy, Barry Masters, who has since deceased and was a lovely man, said, well, do you want to come in and just meet and talk to me? I'm like, yes. So I, um, there was no hope of a job or anything. And he just, I talked to him and he said, well, I think, you know, there's a lot, lot positive about you. You've got a lot of good qualifications, et cetera. He said, would you like to help out at the next tournament in January, um, our Sydney tournament, and you could be assistant in the media room and that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, I said yes, and there was very little pay being offered. I didn't care about that at that point. And post that, I wrote to every tournament director in the world, every single tournament director in the world, a letter, you know, not like an email or a text or whatever. I wrote a proper, fully formed letter, and I posted it to every tournament director in the world. And the Italian Open came back to me, a tournament in New Haven came back to me. You know, quite a few came back to me, and they offered me work because they couldn't believe anyone had ever done it. And they were all talking about me, I found out you know, a year or so later, that everyone was talking about this girl who wrote to me, did you get a letter from that Sally Bradfield? You know, and I funded my trip over there and over to Europe and got work with them and worked with the LTA and then worked with this New Haven tournament and then it just all kept coming and coming from there. And whilst obviously you don't, I'm not saying do the exact same thing, you've got to do something to get noticed or meet people if you don't have any other natural way in. If you're part of a tennis club maybe you've got a way in to meet someone who knows someone who knows someone um but otherwise do something really different find something really different in the way of approaching people now it would probably be a digital version of it something interesting and different you could do but hey yeah you've got to come up with something new and completely different that's awesome this is too cool and um you know for for everyone listening you can find your book on amazon and are there hard copies that you can also purchase through amazon as well and or a million other places all around the world will have it it's all um it can be print on demand if you go to my website www.notquite30love.com there's pointers to where you can buy all versions of the ebook obviously amazon but you can buy ibooks and Kobo and whatever else version you want, just click on the link or you can order a print version from Amazon or from pretty much any online bookstore will um, offer the print version as well. Perfect. And, um, you know, obviously now that we've gotten to the end of the podcast, once we finish recording, then you can send Nina and I your first draft where 80% of it was, you know, actually based on it. So, you know, let's just go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, yeah, just a huge thank you so much for taking the time and giving us all your insight. And uh, yeah, it's been amazing talking with you. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you guys too. And for everyone out there, hang on, it'll come back. Tennis will come back bigger and better and wonderful and brighter and all those things. I know we all have to watch a bit of old matches and follow everyone on TikTok and Goodness knows I'm too old to be following everyone on TikTok, but I'm trying. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Sally. Thank you. Cheers. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, 
Editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva. Producers, Alexa March and Sean O'Malley. And executive producers, Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.